Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, what's up, friends? My name is Andre, and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. And this is a podcast about essentially everything tennis, whatever tennis topic that comes across my mind or I discuss with people online that I feel like talking, I will be talking about in this podcast. And um, this uh, two weeks, we were supposed to be having Olympic Games, but um, everybody knows that COVID happened. And just recently, we started actually having um, professional tennis back. And uh, But before we, st we get back into it, I'm going to dwell a bit into the Olympics time, and I'm going to talk about something a person who a player who has have who has had a very good season that involved the olympics and this person is steffi graf and um to join me today in this discussion is the person who actually kind of pitched this idea to me via twitter and i'm here with vansh fermani welcome vansh how are you doing thank you uh thank you so much for having me andre uh, i'm doing i'm doing fine And I'm excited to dive into Steffi Graf 1988 with you today. Cool. Yeah, I forgot to mention the year. 1988, that's when she won every single Grand Slam in a season. And also she won the Olympic gold medal, which is the, for so far, the only person who has ever managed to do that. Yeah, it's an incredible feat and accomplishment and one that I don't think we'll ever see by a male or a female. And... Uh, I mean, it, it will stand forever in tennis history to win all four majors and the Olympics in the same year and complete the career Golden Slam um, at, at this level with the kind of depth and competition that was in her era in the 80s mm -hmm. is, is just tremendous. And I think it, it deserves, we deserve to relive it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, well... I think because we were actually thinking about like doing other seasons and whatnot, and um, I think just to start, like, why is this a great season? Of course, like, there, there's little that you have to mention. Just the fact that she won all four Grand Slams and that she um, that she won the gold medal, and that, she, that was, she's the only person ever to has ever done so, is already impressive enough. But I'm just gonna say like a couple of the the, the things that I find is the most impressive about um, her year in general uh and maybe you can say other stuff as well from from your end that you actually really think is interesting too and we'll go from there so um one of the things that i think is remarkable from the, her season is the fact that she won she is she was the first um and only person ever actually who has ever won um the grand slam in the same season in three different surfaces that's back in the day when they switched from um 
to to hard courts on Australia and uh, in, in in the U.S. Right. And the other one is the fact that she, um, she only dropped thirteen sets out of in all of the matches that she played, and she played seventy six in total. And in seven of those matches, she won, even though she dropped one set. So, I think that was pretty pretty dominant, honestly. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, her streak really actually started in in 1987 um really is that when she announced herself because at this point she's 18 years old and she turned 18 in 1987 and i mean at this time it was pretty common to have youngest ever records on the women's side and you know we saw plenty of players before her like establish themselves in their teens like we saw um Mar we saw tracy austin doing that when she was younger back in the 70s and um But no one really was getting to Grand Slam, Grand Slam finals, and doing it on all the different surfaces. I think that I think you mentioned a great point about the surfaces, because when I think of Steffi, I think of just so she's just so versatile across her surface. Her game was so adaptable, incredibly fast footwork, the ball control she had. I mean, tremendous racket head speed, especially off the forehand side. The powers she could generate. And I think the power is what really took her to the next level. Because if you look at the players that came before her, I mean, they had incredible net coverage. They produced they produced great angles. They, you know, many players were serving volleying. They were chipping and charging. This her slice backhand was such a major weapon, and she was using these. She had a plan B, plan C, plan D in her games. In her game, that I think could get her out of matches when she was in trouble. And you know, and you mentioned like she won so many of these matches so easily like I, i look back at her um you know french open run 1988 and she beat natasha zvereva in the final six love six love yeah that took only 34 minutes yeah. on the clock the match actually only took 32 but yeah and actually it was the shortest ever grand slam final in the open era and it, that still stands today and it, she lost a total of 13 points in two sets yeah i mean It's it's just it's just ridiculous. Uh, it's um, one of the th you're you're mentioning like that the the how dominant she was not only in the in the in the number of sets as well and then the games that she did, but in by set she was not losing she was not dropping games most of the time she was doing six two six two six one she yeah. uh, made made bagels rain. Which is kind of funny because that's the name of my podcast, but like, um, it's really it's just really fitting, I think. But um, that was a I was reading the interviews I think from the Olympic side or Tennis Channel. There was a person that um, commented I think in the, in her second round. Uh, she said like, as soon as I had played my first game against her, I thought to myself. What the heck am I going to do? It's just, it's just, it's just the level of versatility that she has, which is actually interesting because um, when you think nowadays, and and then you compare it to if you if you're looking uh, across tennis in general, looking uh, Serena Williams and Victoria Zarenka, and also um, likes of a Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, right, yeah. Djokovic rather, she didn't seem to be able to have the game that would be so dominant on slower surfaces like uh rolling arrows because mm -hmm. she barely ever hit um top spin backhand she was like a the type of fast court player that would just run around her her forehands you would think that 
you'd be able to dominate more on like longer rallies but that was just not the case in fact no she won her first uh grand slam in roland garros in 87 right 87 right she beat martina navratilova yeah. in the in the final and you know that was one of those you know scorching days scorching hot days and she won eight six in the third mm-hmm. and yeah just outlasted martina really yeah and speaking of Martina, poor her, she just couldn't find an answer to her in Wimbledon. Uh-huh. And I think that's probably one of the, that's probably one of the matches. Like, uh, obviously, she was already incredibly dominant at that time. But I think if she hadn't won that match, hadn't found a way to win that match, maybe the rest of her career would have been a little bit different. Because she lost the first set 7-5 and right. Rotelova was doing great on the, on the, serve on the back end and i was watching a few highlights today even like before mm-hmm. uh coming to record this and of course you, you could always say that oh yeah there's strategic changes that M- martina could have done there's a few things here and there but all in all she was not really doing much different um she was not playing badly it's just that Graf was just all over the court she just run every single ball and she would just make things happen regardless of where what position she was in at the court and like regardless of where uh, martina would serve to her it, it regard, regardless of what was body or backhand or forehand she would manage to find a good return off of it and yeah the results are there she she took it 6261 and she won like nine games straight so yeah it's it's really interesting actually how that match just dramatically shifted because if you watch the first set i mean like you said like i mean she was winning Martina was winning so many free points just off of her serve because she was getting she was mixing it up really well. She was hitting uh, great angles, uh, especially the wide serve to Steffi's backhand. She was having a lot of success with that play, and she was coming in. She was cutting off the angle, and I mean Steffi just looked a little bit like her footwork was a little bit off in that first set. I felt like because one of her strengths, one of uh, Graf's major strengths, is that ability to run around her backhand. And hit, I mean, she can almost do anything with that forehand. She can hit it inside in, inside out. And I mean, her backhand is, her backhand slice is is just, I mean, it's such a beauty. Like if you watch her backhand slide and you just watch, like if they had slow motion video back then, I mean, that would be such a treat to just watch, watch the way it's almost like, you know how when you throw a frisbee and you, you have to kind of knife it and keep it so low. That it stays so close to the so close to the ground, and essentially your opponent is, you know, essentially you're back in the rally, and you're you're remaining unattackable because your opponent can't really do anything off that pace. There's no pace on that ball. It's it's spinning away from you. It has side spin. But against Martina, Martina was so good at closing the net and coming in right off the first serve that she could just knock that volley. Uh, she could just knock that volley in the open court, and then, you know, Martina. I mean, Graf was just left stranded. And then, and so that's what happened basically in the first set. And I thought that Graf really upped her intensity. And she, she, her serve in the last two sets, I mean. Yeah. I mean, just unstoppable. Just, just unstoppable. And, and not only the serve, just her one two punch. Her, I mean, she was mixing in the serve and volley as well. I mean, not to the extent mm-hmm. that Martina was doing. Because Graf could also rely on her baseline play a lot more. And True. Yeah, because yeah, that was the thing too. And it's not like I was looking in the highlights. That was the thing that I, I, I noticed very very well is that 
um, th- there's a, a, some sort of like misconception, I would say, that tennis, um, uh, women's tennis just kind of became powerful mm. uh, during the Williams times, like when there was a, right, right. a Davenport was coming in mm. and, uh, and back in the late 90s right. and early 2000s, and that was Serena and v- Venus, but... Right. Um, the, that era. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the the game was already very fast. Like if you look at how they played, they were incredibly athletic. Um and I was looking at Martina and when she was doing her volleys and doing uh backhands mashes uh and I could see that she was a great player. She was not she she was not outplayed because she was playing badly in a sense. She was outplayed because Graf was just too much to handle. She just couldn't find an answer to get past uh, Graf's um, weapons. It, it was just the athleticism of Navratilova and her her um, tactics at the net, her, her game style. Just nothing was just working because maybe maybe um, Graf was probably finding um, like a, a different gear. Maybe she was kind of like getting more in the zone as well. Especially after winning so much during the year, she was probably feeling incredibly great about herself. And um, so yeah, and. Just to, just to give a bit more perspective on just how huge that win was, as, as, as well as that Navratilova hadn't lost a Wimbledon match since 1981. So it's been, it, it had been seven but years. She had already won seven titles. Eight. Eight, eight titles. I think she was 8-0 in finals at that point. Right, heading into, because she had also beaten uh, Graf the previous year in the final. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. Eighty-seven. She beat Graf. Yeah. yeah, she beat Graf in uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, following the Roman Garros defeat. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, so you know, I mean, Martina was also coming into that final with with a lot of confidence, too, and and you you know you could see in the in the first set, especially I think even at the end of the first set, you could see that I mean things were things were going to change, but you definitely didn't expect a six-two, six-one scoreline. Yeah, exactly. Especially after the first set, which was pretty competitive. So you'd think that it was be that would be a little bit more of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean for sure. I mean, and and Martina, I think more than held her own in, in this rivalry as well. I think full credit to her as well because, I mean, she, this was towards the dawn of her. This was, I mean, this was past her prime, her career, and this is when you know Graf was really in the in her pomp and. You know, like like you said, I think actually heading into Wimbledon that year, she'd only lost two matches, and uh, her overall record on the year was seventy-two and three. So she played; she won eleven titles out of, I mean, fourteen tournaments played, eleven titles. I mean, that's as good of a mm-hmm. ratio as you'll ever see. That's yeah. That's that's a uh, Navratilova, right? Or is it Graf? Uh, no, Graf, nineteen eighty-eight. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know who so, you know what her three yeah. losses were? I know, yeah. She surprisingly she didn't lose to Everett or Navratilova the whole year. Right. She lost twice to uh Gabriela Sabatini right. and once to Pam Shriver. And that's actually interesting too, because it kind of shows uh it shows two things. One uh, like a bit of a it shows a um changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. In a, in a sense, because Sabatini was already uh, uh, one of the newest players, even though I think she only won uh, one Grand Slam and right. made the finals of another two or something. I mean, she was was a perennial semifinalist, finalist, you know, top five player, but just just I think just couldn't quite get over the line, and um, I mean, just wasn't wasn't clutch enough in those big moments. 
um, against Graf because actually her matches with with Graf were quite quite interesting and I mean that was a really close rivalry for a while. I mean I know even heading into the into the first loss, so she lost twice to Sabatini, um, and her first loss was in Boca Raton in the final in Miami in uh, before March. It's an event that they have uh, before Indian Wells, and prior to that, I mean. Graf was 11-0 against Sabatini in their head-to-head. But many of those matches were going to three sets or a final set tiebreak. Yeah, including those two, they went to three sets. Those two matches that she lost, they yeah. went to three sets. And afterwards, in the U.S. Open, uh, Sabatini also pushed her into a, th- um, a third set. Right, yes. And she only didn't take a set in the Olympics final. Yeah, and I mean, and, and actually, um, we many people talk about the Natasha's were able thrashing in the final. But... Uh, of the French that year in in '88, uh, 13 points lost, and you know, I mean, the, I mean, you'll hear about that everywhere in the in in the media, and it's it's not forgotten even today. But her match against Nat- uh, Natasha Zvereva was was the more was so impressive because she'd already lost twice to her heading into Roland Garros that year, and once on hard and once on green clay actually, and both were in tough three setters, and for her to Win that match six three seven six in the semis, in danger of losing that second set, and getting it into a tiebreak. And because that was her toughest match, in route to to her title. I mean, every other match she was winning six love sets. Yeah, she beat. That was a yeah. yeah. That was a semifinal, right? That was right? a semifinal, yeah. And so that yeah. so that really showed you. I mean, and you could easily tell with her attitude and her. I watched highlights of it, and I mean her. Her emotion coming out at the end of that semifinal was greater than when she won the final. And I mean, I mean, Sabatini really had her number for a while. And I mean, I mean, just not just in 1988 or 1987, but really afterwards. I think Graf finished like 29 and 11 as her head-to-head against Sabatini, and I mean, it was it was a terrific rivalry. Yeah, it's surprising, right? Because uh... If you, if, you, if you said that she started off as 11-0, right? 11-0. Yes. And then to for Sabatini to come find a way to like win 11 matches, I think that's pretty big. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah. she won the next... Like, I mean, Graf was still winning two-thirds of the matches afterwards. But, I mean, you know, many times in, in, in big matches and big finals of premier events, premier mandatories, and also in the U.S. Open final two years later, when she won her first Sabatini. So, I mean, yeah, that was that was one of those rivalries you just wish, like, um, you know, maybe Sabatini could have salvaged two or three more slams, and, you know, she'd, write, she'd be right up there in that conversation of with Monica and Rancho Sanchez, Vicario, and Graf, and, you know, that whole era in the 90s. But, but yeah, just unfortunately couldn't get over the line in, in some of those moments. And they had very similar games, too, actually. Um, Graf and Sabatini. I don't know. I mean, if you notice, like, Graf served a little bit bigger when it really counted. But Probably Sabatini had a, a lesser forehand yes, as well. Yes, lesser, lesser forehand. But, I mean, same kind of just beautiful court coverage. And it's almost like, it's almost like if, I don't know if this is even a good comparison, but it's almost like today, you know, like think of Roger Federer as Steffi Graf. And maybe think of, you know, another one-handed backhand player who, moves gracefully around the court and has great athleticism, covers the net really well. And it's just kind of 
it's just kind of that matchup of like somebody who has everything and a little bit more. Um, you know, like for example, when Federer plays Grigor Dimitrov in present in present day, I mean, a lot of their skill sets are are very similar. Their game styles are very similar. Um, they're both in, they both have great forehands. They look to step in and dictate off the first shot. They both like to come yeah. to the net and finish points off. But but it's just like Federer is just a little bit more of a of a player, right? Yeah. And it's I think that's kind of like comes to to graph as well. If we go back to the nineteen eighty eight season, mm-hmm. it's it's not um the it's the season that marks her career as uh one of her biggest achievements. But it's by no means like say for example, a player that has had like one big season and that was it. Like no. um not only is so much so that um she started off um the year uh, and she won all of the four Grand Slams plus the gold medal and then she went off to win the Australian Open the next year. So she five, five in, in fact won five Grand Slams in a row and then she won seven out of eight Grand Slams yeah. in two years. And I- so that is yeah, that's just sheer domination. It's the the season doesn't hold enough tournaments yeah. for Graf to win almost. Wow. That's essentially what it was. Yeah, and I mean, and and like you said, I mean, some of her streaks in in, in majors. I mean, in, I mean, at this time, I mean, I guess players were hitting their peak earlier in women's tennis, you know, around eighteen. But for her to go from nineteen eighty seven French Open to nineteen ninety Wimbledon, that's thirteen majors right there. She reached thirteen Slam finals in a row. Like she was either winning in like what three yeah, years, right? She was that's, either winning or losing in the final. And she won nine of those thirteen. And two of those losses, I mean, were to Navratilova and when in 1987. So I mean, Graf hadn't really established herself yet, and yeah. really just one. But she was getting there. Yeah, really yeah. just one loss to Rancho Sanchez Vicario and in, in the mm-hmm. French Open uh, the yeah. following year. And yeah, and I just I just saw uh, I I took a note here of uh, one of the statistics that just. Um, it's kind of like almost shocking to see uh, the the nomination of her like. As I, as I said previously, she had won 148 sets and lost only 13. And in, in this span, uh, she only played three set matches. Yeah. Out of out of the whole uh, 73, 76 matches that she played, <laughs> she only she only played nine uh, three set matches. Actually, that's that's what wow. I wanted to say. Nine nine uh, three set matches played, out of which she only lost two. <laughs> So and those are two Gabriela Sabatini and that's uh, I think it's it's a it's a, a little bit of a shame if you say um, when we come come around the goat debate and whatnot mm-hmm. um, as a, as a, we said already like establishing that she she's the only one who has the golden slam right um, which by the way um, in Seoul they have placed a, a, a commemorative plaque with. Uh, like here is like this is where the golden slam was achieved something like mm-hmm. that and it's it's a it's a unique fa- um, feat in tennis so and when we talk about when we start like moving into goat debates and stuff like that i think yeah. um it would be interesting if you could precise uh at this point like that we we're talking about the male and the female or if we're talking about everywhere like in tennis, because I, I wouldn't think, for example, that I would place um, Steffi Graf 
um, below Djokovic and Nadal and yeah. even Federer in, in, the, in those debates. I think they're second to her. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the kind of dominance, I mean, I mean th that she had. I mean, and just like some of her quotes too. Like if you read some of her, you know, press reports and and some of those liners that stick out. After she lost the second time to Sabatini, she said, "Quote: When you lose a couple of times, it makes you realize how difficult it is to win." I think it just shows like she was such a great champion. She also took the losses really well, and I think. She just didn't take anything for granted. She was also she she was also not super imposing or intimidating, but really just kept really just kept to herself and let her racket do the talking. And you know, especially in an era where you know, I mean, women's tennis was 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 what had just come from from uh, Everett and Navratilova and. Uh, you know, Billie Jean King, and all these guys were major personalities in the sport who had, who, who'd left a hallmark and legacy. Um, I mean, not only in tennis, in pop culture. And I, I just think it's so interesting that, you know, I mean, Steffi Graf just took took this approach where, I mean, tennis was was everything to her. And it was all, it was all she could dream about. And here's another quote. It says, um, I mean, some of, some of these quotes are really, really inspiring and even even now it says i never look back i look forward which it says you can't measure success if you have never failed my father taught me that if you really do want to achieve and, and reach your goals you can't spend any time worrying about whether you're going to win or lose focus only on getting better yeah it, it reminds me a bit of uh the rafa nadal, yeah, rafa um, nadal. philosophy of uh yeah it's kind of like always improving and i i just recently read um, an interview with uh, Carlos Moya, mm -hmm. uh, and he said this, Rafa Nadal is probably one of the best players to work with because he is a second in um, Grand Slam uh, numbers of number of titles, right. and he's a, a, the, the beast in Roland Garros that mm -hmm. nobody can ever defeat, essentially. And But he, uh, Carlos Moya was saying that how, how humble Nadal actually uh, behaves and how much he's like, always listening to suggestions and, uh, and, and feedback and always in, uh, looking to improve in parts of his game and things like that. And um, it's, it's interesting that we kind of like mentioned Nadal because uh, yeah. uh, he, uh, in 2000, yeah, in 2010, he had well, like one of the best seasons of his career. And that was kind of, that brought a lot of change in his game as well. And we are actually going to be talking about this season at some point, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's going to be probably... Um, so stay tuned, listener, uh, for maybe next week or the week after we're going to be talking about Rafa Nadal's 2010 season and a few more. So yeah, it'll be cool. Yeah. And, and this, and I mean, what I love about all these greats and all these champions and doing these, this podcast series is there's so many seasons you can choose and there's, there's just so nice to have so many options and just kind of look back and relive Because I mean, I mean, it's interesting actually that you mentioned Nadal. It's it's a very similar kind of kind of attitude that uh, Graf demonstrated towards her game, towards the game, and you know, incredibly humble. Never took any opponent for granted. I mean, these kind of numbers that she has in six love, six one type sets, these are numbers that you'd see from Rafa Nadal at the French Open in his in his prime dominant years, and you know, I mean never really got into any controversies or, you know, anything like that on the court. Great sportsmanship. 
True. Never great, smash the racket. Yeah, uh, great example to the younger generation. And mm-hmm. that's a little bit like how Graph was um, back, back yeah. in the day. Yeah, I, I, I actually remember um, when I was getting more into um, tennis history and things like that. Back when Federer was trying to break uh, Pete Sampras' record of 14 Grand Slams. And um, I, I came. Ac- I don't remember exactly how, but I came across the fact that Graf had already like 22 Grand Slams, and then Navratilova had 18, and then so did Everett. And I was just mesmerized. I was impressed by this this feat that those those women were able to do. And I was like, that is that is just insane. Like, look at the level of domination. Like, the men are just not not even close to that. I mean, yeah. Federer has gone to 20, which for me, it's, it's just unbelievable. But um, I don't even think he's, he has another two slams in no. him. Although, to be fair, we did think that in back in 2012. But regardless, <laughs> um, it time is, is running low for him, honestly. But yeah. um, this, this season, though, like, uh, as I mentioned, like, how unbelievable this is um graf is one of only four players i believe in the open era who have been able to complete the uh career golden slam Mm -hmm. um those other players are rafa nadal uh, serena williams and andre agassi and because federer and djokovic haven't done it yet they haven't won the yeah they didn't yeah, so they 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 might have a chance next year. Um, yeah. Probably Djokovic a better chance than 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 Federer. Right. Um, but in in your view, like uh, this season, um, I, I guess I have two questions there. Like, uh, just in the sense, like um, looking forward and looking back, and just how in- unbelievable this this was. Right. Um, how do you think? Do you think anybody else will ever be able to accomplish this again? No, I mean it's 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 interesting you you brought that up. Really, I was I remember going through Novak in 2016, and when he just become the first guy since Jim Courier to win the Australian Open and French in the same year, and he had just held all four slams at once, and he was on the pinnacle and the absolute you know peak on top of the world, hoisting that Roland Garros trophy that had eluded him for so many years, and just to keep that motivation up to the entire season. And because, I mean, even, even in these, even in, in the way that Graph played, you know, it's very easy for a casual fan or somebody to just go on YouTube and watch and think, wow, she has a great backhand slice, incredible ability to finish out points of the net. She's incredibly efficient. You know, her game is, her game is versatile, adaptable to all surfaces, etc. But they kind of take it for granted just how difficult it is to win and how physical these matches really are, actually are. I mean, even if you're winning 6-love, six 6-1 six one, six one sets, to grind through like the way she did on clay and her ability to outlast opponents on all surfaces, because Graf was so good on all surfaces. She won seven Wimbledon, six French, five US, four Australian Opens. And, you know, similar to the way people kind of underestimate Federer's grit and determination and ability to... Um, you know, bounce back from tough defeats and things like that. These are things that, you know, normally you don't associate with someone who plays the game so effortlessly like champions like Graf do or Roger Federer do and things like that. And so I think just her ability to keep that up through the whole season and do it on all surfaces and against still really tough competition like Chris Ebert and Martina Navratilova, they were at the end of their careers at this at this point, but they were still still a force to be reckoned with, still competing 
in Grand Slam finals, Grand Slam semis, and you know, I mean, she was she was just the she was just the greatest at this. Point. Yeah, and um, I guess uh, one of the other things that I, um, I, something actually crossed my mind, but I forget right now. Uh, if I if I remember, I'll probably mention that back. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, oh, yeah, I so far, honestly to, to go back and answer your question just for a second. Yeah, I, sure, I just don't ahead. think it'll ever be done. It'll ever be done. You know, ever again, really. I mean, Novak was the closest to doing it in 2015 and and 2016. But you know, I mean, even he, even Djokovic always says the Olympics is where his uh, you know focus and motivation is right now. I believe, too, because that's basically the only thing that's eluded him. And you know, to do it all in one season, like the way Graf did, yeah, I don't think you will oh, yeah, see it male or female. Yeah, exactly. And Serena Williams, uh, when I was reading the things uh, I came across, because there's a difference between uh, the one season, but the next season, there is more tournaments, right? So like, for example, uh, Serena Williams has two Serena, Serena's lambs right. that, that we call yeah. them. Like she has held all four grand slams, but not in the same season. Yeah, yeah, twice, not in the same season. And Djokovic has done so once as yes. well. And the only man who has been able to do this in the men's side is obviously um, Rod Laver in the open era. I believe people have been able to do this. At least two or three people have been able to do this uh, in before the open era. But if we focus just uh, after 68, that's kind of like when most of the statistics are actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I I even looked at at, um, Serena's career and I I was looking into see whether she was able to do... um, all of the Grand Slams plus the gold medal, gold medal in two different um, seasons, mm-hmm. and she she wasn't able to. So like even in in two different seasons, it's still something that is incredibly hard to accomplish to to achieve. It's just yeah, it's just unbelievable. And then she did this in the same season, and the next season she did like um, the the three slams again. And mm-hmm. I think her her record was even better in nineteen in in eighty nine. Um, not 80, 89 right yeah. 89, yeah in in 89 in terms of match win right, and match win loss ratio yeah. yeah so it was even better so like she she pulled off like um she was almost able to do it two years in a row i mean that's and you look at like yeah. in 1989 she lost a close 7-5 three set match to Rancho mm-hmm. Sanchez Vicario in the so i mean her 1989 season was a lot like you know some of Federer and Djokovic's in their primes mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she was prime for so long. She was so dominant, yeah, like almost an entire. She retired. Yeah, she she retired at number three in the world in 1999. Yeah, I I, I you know I remember like she had she she'd won the French Open in '99. She she won that match against Hingis. And uh, I mean that's the, that's one match actually that got away from Hingis because she was for it at six four five four, and. Uh, she let outside things kind of affect her, and there were some there were some controversies. She took a fifteen minute bathroom break. She lost that set, and uh, and I think yeah. And then and Steffi at that point was kind of at the end of her career. She had already made up her mind basically after winning that she a wanted to go on top, but b also because she had incredible longevity and she was already, you know, I mean at that time thirty years. If you were playing until you were thirty, that's you know that's that's an achievement. I mean, it's not it's not even quite to the extent like Navratilova and Ever. They played until they were thirty three, thirty four years old. But 
I mean, Graf was already physically, her body was breaking down, a lot of injuries. So she won the French Open in 99, defeated Hingis, and then lost the final to Navratilova and then called yeah. quits at Wimbledon. Yeah. And I think my my other my other question is also it's it's kind of like related to the the greatest of all time discussion. If if we like opening for the, the men or I mean like for for both and, and, and overall like if you if you're opening for both men male and female to compete of of course yeah. it's it's very hard if you're comparing um both tours because they don't play against each other. So right. you already miss the fact that like you already are missing uh, head-to-heads and things like that. Like, it's how would they compare? It's very difficult to compare to both sexes. Probably yeah. better if we, if you just, you know. yeah. But like, it, would you say that like, um, because seasons are a little bit different as well? I find yeah. so. Would you would you say that uh, Graf has had the best season of all time? <laughs> is is this the best season of all time? So, amongst the women's side, I think it definitely has to be number one. Just, just because, I mean, look, I mean, Serena was fantastic in 2015, 2013, 2002, 2003. You know, she was going, she was winning, you know, roughly 94%, 95%. I mean, 72-3 win percentage for Graf in 98. By itself, if you just looked at that number, it might not be number one. But just the Golden Slam and the amount of six-love sets and her place in tennis history by by you know by overcoming her because she also because to lose twice to the same opponent and have that be on your mind coming into such a big match and then overcoming that rivalry and turning that around in the same season as well as winning all four slams and the gold medal for me that puts it right at the top and I know, I mean, I, I don't know too much about before the Open era. And I know that, uh, for instance, uh, Margaret Court had 24 slams, but only 11 of them were in the Open era. And so the level of competition was different. Many people were skipping Australian Opens. And, you know, I mean, at this time in 19... What's so important is that in 1988, uh, the Australian Open also moved surfaces, right? So before it used to be played on grass, now it was, uh, was on hard court. And it was it was also the first slam of the year. So basically, a lot of a lot more players were playing the Australian Open at this point in time. So it's not even like the Australian Open is an asterisk. It's really there's really just no knock on her. I mean, overall, you can't even say like, oh, she was in a weak generation, or oh, she, you know, you know, there's just there's just nothing really to knock her out. Yeah, exactly. Like she, she was just there is there is nothing that you can say essentially against yeah. against her. Like you could say, for example, like like some people bring up their argument against uh, Federer's uh, seasons right. between the, um, the four and oh seven. Yeah. yeah, but it's just never till uh, never till um, Steffi Graf had had to play against so many great players, and in, including the fact that you've just mentioned how um, they switched uh, to hard courts. Yeah. That's basically the reason, one of the biggest reasons why um, Everett beat uh, Navratilova in the semifinals of the of that um, of that that slam, and then coming to the final, it may have benefited a bit. Of the Australian, um, you're saying in 1988. Yeah, Australian Open. Yeah, she, in beat, she beat Everett in the final. Yeah, yeah she beat Everett six one seven six in the final yeah. on a 
slower, bouncier court mm-hmm. that probably fitted her um, her game a bit better. Right. And while it, it, it can it can always be kind of like arguing in a sense like, oh, what would it have been whether if it was a uh, grass slam still uh, that year and then Navratilova had made the final, like would Graf had had the same year? Um, but I think it, it, there's a great point in, in just uh, Graf winning against uh, Navratilova on, on grass um, at Wimbledon after Navratilova had um, beaten her, I think, the year before and had been unbeaten for seven years straight. Um, and arguably the best uh, Wimbledon player of all time um, at nine Wimbledon titles. She, what she accomplished in, in defeating her on grass as well, I think is... Uh, it's quite of a testimony of like how it's it's proof of how she is not just like a slow court player and she is able to to beat um, fast court players on in their own game and she's able to outplay them and just those those two sets it's just um, six two, six two six one is it, it just shows that it's there's no luck involved <laughs> it's a uh, it's just essentially how how great she did. There was a there was a quote that I picked up from a website which I forget. I think it was from uh maybe the tennis again from the tennis channels or the Olympic website. I think it was from the Olympic website. It's um so speaking about the, the second set, the shift came la- came at last with Navratilova serving at two zero. Two of her deliveries drifted away from grass backhand, and the German made her play with two forehand return winners. Navratilova was broken and so was the dam. She wouldn't hold against it. She wouldn't hold again as Graf won nine games in a row in the first, in the first of her seven Wimbledon titles, five seven six two six one. Um, quote: It was like trying to stop a runaway, runaway train. train. Right. I remember that. Yeah. I came across that quote too yeah. in the website. Yeah, from Peter Alfano, right. uh, who wrote that in yeah. the New York Times. I mean, I mean, it's a great piece. It just shows like once she got her groove into the match, and once she, because she had so many different styles of playing. Too, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just, uh, you know, one particular game that worked on grass or serving volleys, or, you know, like like some of the. I'm not saying that the players before her didn't have a plan B or a plan C, but it's just that that the shift from from you know Martina and Evertilova to Graf, there was a d- difference in power too. Like I mean, if you look at because. You know, Martina was had such great hands and such great feel, such good touch of both the backhand volley and the forehand volley. But Graf was not only able to dip the ball down low, she was able to do it with pace and with such speed that, you know, Navratilova just couldn't, she would just pop one up short and then Graf would have a lot of a lot of the court to work with. And she was, you know, just using her all-court all, all craft beautifully. And I think it was just without being able to really penetrate through the court, it, it was just going to be so hard to stop her. And just, I mean, just you might think, okay, keep keep on hitting it to her backhand and just letting that side break down. But her ability to surprise you and then suddenly flatten the backhand out and go down the line and cross was beautiful because her slice backhand was so dependable on 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 grass and it just set up her forehand beautifully and her forehand today i think would have re- would have held up like there's no doubt in my mind if you watch her, her footwork and the small adjustment steps she makes to come around the ball especially in especially on the ad side her inside out and inside in forehand i mean it's 
her footwork is up there, I'd say, with some of the great, some of the best in the game today, like Simona Halep. Yeah, actually, I totally agree with you on that. And that um, I think her game, um, if she were to be playing now yeah. uh, in this, this era, I think the only thing that she would have probably like a little bit more trouble with would be hitting um, the backhand topspin because she w- yeah. would really rely on the, on the slice. what's it called? the Yeah, on the slice. Uh, and today people are more able to bring the ball up and down uh, with a lot of spin uh, a little bit more um, easily. Um, because of uh, changes in how they right. they pick their grips and whatnot, but it would still be she would probably still have won slams like and yeah. probably would have won a lot of them. Like uh, I don't think she would have maybe yeah. she wouldn't have been able to win twenty uh, two, but she would have been able to be up there like a, that's like a solid fifteen sixteen. I think she'd be able to. Yeah, and um, um, it's interesting yeah. you bring up how she would do today because actually I was also looking. She'd played Serena Williams twice. And they were both in 1999 when Serena won her first slam. Was it 1999 US Open? She beat Hengis in the final. But so that year, I mean, the Williams sisters had already come up uh, by then. And Serena was about 17, 18 years old. And, you know, normally, like I think you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, that people look at the Williams sisters and think, oh, wow, this is when the game really shifted to a power, to the power game. And this is when, you know, players were playing mostly from the baseline and and surfaces started to... I mean, they were still playing fast, but they started to homogenize in the 2000s and all that. But actually, she held up really well, and this was at the end of her career in 1999. And she played Serena twice, and they finished at one one all each. And they played in the Indian Wells final. I mean, it was a tight 7-5. Serena won at 7-5 in the third. They split 6-3 sets. And just before that, also, they played in Sydney before the Australian Open, and Graf won that 7-5 in the third and it's so interesting actually like who would have thought 20 years later you know serena would be at 23 steffi would be at 22 and we'd be having this goat debate and greatest of all time but in reality i mean that those two results right there just back up what you were saying before that i mean had she played in this era today i think i completely agree with you yeah i mean she would have had to adapt on the backhand you know take the ball earlier a bit like federer does now take time away off the return and you know, she'd have to make all these adjustments, but you know, I mean, not a whole lot. Like she would, her game would have really sure yeah. would have would have stood up with with anybody. Like I think, yeah, I think even mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. It, when I was uh, checking a bit of the, some of the highlights, um, it was a, a longer video. It wasn't just like a two minute highlight, but like um, she when I was playing Navratilova, she was. Um, it, it's kind of like um, it, and. You kind of like can make, can draw a bit of a comparison. That's that's how I felt in the beginning, like in the first set seven five. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt a little bit like a Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer type of situation, right. in which Navratilova would just slice it endlessly to uh, Graf's backhand, mm-hmm. and that would just leave the court open and to get like a, a, a nice put away volley, yeah. which she did uh, brilliantly. But uh, starting on the second set, um, when Graf started like feeling her backhands a little bit more and. She was just hopping like a bunny on on court, like running around her backhands, and even when the the balls would come to her to her backhand, she would just block uh, that the shot just so nicely on such awkward spots for for a volley. As you mentioned, she would she'd be able to keep that really low, and at times she would just really just come up with a winner, just like uh, putting 
just she was just able to play around with the ball however she wanted and Navratilova she she started you can kind of like see how she started breaking her her tactics was not we're just not holding up anymore yeah. she just didn't necessarily know exactly what to do she was she started serving a lot to uh, Graf's body yeah but that was just that was just a terrible decision yeah. because uh because what Graf would do is just she was just so ready to take that ball onto onto her backhand to run around it yeah, I mean... that she would just like take a uh one last step that she would to run around the forehand if she would serve to to her actual uh, backhand side, and she would just like run around that easily and just hit a big forehand, and that was it. That was Navratilova just had nowhere to place her serve. Uh, she tried serving to her forehand sometimes, and that got some results. But it's it's almost like Graf was was just ready. She was ready for anything. She was fast. She was moving. And there was nowhere you could hit that she wouldn't hit the back ball, hit hit the ball back with interest. It was um, it was just so so fantastic to to see that. And if I'm comparing to the the last episode that I did uh, with Andy Murray playing against Roger Federer, and Andy Murray's tactic was kind of similar to Navratilova in which he he served especially on the edge side the, to the um, Olympics. Uh, yeah, the Olympics match. Right. Yeah. So Murray a lot, served a lot to uh, Federer's back, uh, Federer's body on uh, breakpoints, right? And that worked with Federer because Federer just seemed to not necessarily right. exactly quite, read read. He wasn't quite good. Yeah, he couldn't read the serve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and that's the other point too. Is I like you mentioned in this match, especially after the first set. I mean, she was reading the serve like a book. She was anticipating. She was, she was taking those little small adjustment steps and just putting the ball, just placing the ball in a really awkward spot. And the, I mean, at, there were a few points where she was hitting return winners, just you know, straight up return winners, either down the line on the ad side, uh, off off her backhand, or she even her some of her slices, even some of her backhand slices that were working very well in Navratilova's favor. In the, in the first set, she was having a lot of success, like serving to Steffi's backhand, getting it up high, getting it wide, and you know, Graf wasn't really in the optimal position in the next the the ball that would come next. But what I noticed in the second set was that she was one she was she was step she was adjusting her return position so that she was standing in the doubles alley almost. And just anticipating that wide serve over and over and over. So then Martina felt like, okay, I can I can go to the tee, I can go to the body. But that tactic just proved to be it worked on occasion, but it it it, it wasn't a consistent enough tactic to where uh, you know she wasn't able to anticipate anymore. And and then once it came to from to the baseline, I felt that Graf was just overpowering Martina. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting in the, in her Grand Slam run, um, mm-hmm. in the Olympics, I believe she lost one set uh, as well, or either she she lost either one or two sets on en route to uh, winning um, the the gold medal. Right. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, just uh, as like a side uh, side note that I wanted to give was that apparently she didn't have much time to rest after the U.S. Open, and she. Right. Which, which now is it's kind of funny to think that the Olympics are... Well, yeah, the Olympics I'm not were sure. after the yeah. U.S. Open. I noticed that. You know, so yeah. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that... What do you think? Does, does that make the... Um, 
the the defeat um more impressive or what? do you think for example if 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 for example Nadal would have mm -hmm. won um the his gold medal or anyone else for that matter um and won all of the grand slams but having won the gold medal after Wimbledon and then going into the US Open what do you think takes a bigger toll on you and how do you think a player gets more prepared for something after or before the US Open um it's it's interesting actually in, in Nadal's case um so he won Queens he'd won Wimbledon he played the hardcore tournaments leading up to the US Open and then there was the Olympics sort of pre-US Open right and so you know that was almost like a like that was almost like essentially another warm up tournament for him and it just gave him it just gave him more confidence just getting into that US Open but in in this case I don't think no I don't think to answer your question I don't think it takes away anything in fact it's probably even more impressive because as you start getting closer to the end of the season you know September October a lot of players start getting more fatigued and just the travel and that wear and tear just sort of you know sort of just sticks in your craw a little bit and most players are a little bit a little bit down they kind of want to go uh you know take a break from it all and have an off season right there and then so for Stefan to then go after win after winning all four slams and then still have that motivation to go after that gold medal and she was tested she was tested in the fourth round and the quarter she was tested in i want to say the fourth round right and she actually lost a set and to a, a top 20 seed i forget who it was mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd have to look back. Yeah, but then to go and then play an excellent semifinal and final. And she beat who did she beat in the semis? She beat uh I think beat Zina Garrison. She beat I, Zina Garrison in the semis. Yeah. And she, she won yeah. it easily, like six two, six oh. And yeah, then which is Yeah. This is this is her score for uh, the Olympic Games, by the way. She she got a bye in the round of sixty four. She was seeded number one, mm -hmm. obviously. She was she beat uh Leila Meski Mes from Georgia seven five six one seven five was rather impressive, and that that's when it started. Like um, then, Ka Catherine Sweet uh, six three six zero, and then the the first test and only pretty much Larissa Neeland uh, from Latvia six two four six and then six three. Was that the quarter? And so then that was the quarterfinals, yeah. And then in the in the in the semifinal, as you said, Zina Garrison. Six two six love, and then Gabriela Sabatini in the final six three six three. Yeah, so I mean her yeah. her last five sets of the tournament were all six three or less. Mm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Just to go back to your question, I don't think it takes anything yeah. away. In fact, it's probably more impressive. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there was there. There are two things about it that I want to say. Like one, it, it's that um, I think it, it's it's so incredible incredible like probably the the mental toll that it takes on you as you said like the motivation and there there are two things about it that um well at least one thing for example you come after winning all of the grand slams yeah. there's only the gold medal left for you right like i mean yeah. probably the the notion of golden slam didn't exist she created that yeah she coined that um, by winning yeah but uh um i cannot even imagine like if you win yeah. um the four grand slams in today's slams, game it would be nearly impossible yeah and i think if if i if i were a player back in the day if i if i were her and i had won all the grand slams in the same year in the same uh, season 
there I could be either of two. I could be either ex- extremely exhausted mentally. I'm, I'm just, I couldn't even um, bear the fact that I won so much. And I wouldn't, I would come up with so much pressure that I probably would crack. Or I would be so pumped and so confident of my game that I would probably go on and win. And I, I have no idea what was help, uh, happening, happening in, uh, in Graf's head when she did it. She was probably not even thinking. She was just going. Running and, on her own. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then, and then at the end, she just, she just wins. Yeah. Like she, she just puts her, her arms in the air and that, that's it. Yeah, I mean it's it was it's almost like a fairy tale type story mm-hmm. where it, almost like nobody in the history of tennis has ever done, and it, it will probably never be matched. Like I just, I just can't see yeah. it. And she and she was uh, how old was she in nineteen eighty eight? She was eighteen years old or nineteen. Eighty eight. She was eighteen and turned nineteen, 19 um, over yeah. the year. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, as a nineteen year old to win four slams and the Olympics in the same year. I mean, there were there were players like, you know, Martina Hingis later on, who won slams at 16 or 17, but none of them had the kind of consistency, and none of them were all surface players like the way Steffi was. She made it look so easy that it's forgotten today. Yeah, I guess there's a there's a little bit twofold maybe in that sense. Maybe well, it's it's a graph and she made it look easy, mm-hmm. but I think that there is one of the problems as well, which mm-hmm. is how sometimes we're we're a little bit biased yeah. in how we talk about records, yeah. and I feel like we tend to um, uh, elevate a lot more of the the men's game. As I said, like um, I didn't even know that no. that that was an Martina and Everett when I started following, and uh, they had way more slams than than Federer. Yeah. And now Serena has like 23 and she's closing into 24. Yeah. Uh, still pretty much a favorite whenever she goes on to exactly. court. Um, and whenever, so, and, yeah, just yeah. to add on that, I mean, like whenever you say like, oh, she made it look easy, that's not to take anything away from from the achievement or the accomplishment on its on its own. It's just that the fact that we have to kind of think and bring that and think like, oh, wow, this, there were players before the big three or before Serena that achieved so much in the game. And it's almost like, like people today because of the fan groups and because of social media and because of you know just how divided sometimes fans are that you know we we cherry pick and we choose certain statistics because we have certain biases towards one player that we grew up following that we that you know that connected us to the game whether it be Nadal, Federer or Sampras, Agassi, anybody really. We sometimes forget what the eras before did and so that's why these podcasts and these relived episodes are just such a good reminder of just you know how underrated some of these achievements some achievements really are and yeah i mean graph is just no exception to that in fact she's probably she probably tops it all out like just period greatest season ever yeah and um there there there's a thing too like in that in that um in that same vein like i find um there is it's it's just like uh when when you start like doing the the relived and um looking at uh, old matches and that there's another account on uh twitter i think it's called tennis aloha uh he, yeah. who is currently following the whole 90 seasons and uh yeah. that's 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 so much um work to yeah. for me like I, I cannot even imagine like seeing seeing so many tennis I, matches I don't know how he and uh yeah how how can you how can you possibly it's 10 years worth of tennis matches man so it's a lot i i praise i i applaud that effort 
<laughs> and uh, when when I when you you hit the the nail in the head there, like when you said like um, people seem to think that tennis starts and ends with the big three, yeah. and a lot of that is obviously Recency because bias. of recency bias and social media and the fact that we are able to see them like time and time again and i i think it's so much it's so worth it to uh, look back and like see the other seasons because you see that it's it's not that they're not accomplished like they obviously are incredible players and they're they're almost rewriting in the sense like uh, the way the tennis is, is being played and i'm i don't think that they're not they're affecting only men's uh play but i believe they're They're affecting um, women's game as well. As much as Serena Williams, I believe, is affecting the way um, a lot of players play the game and, and the men's as well. Um, but but they're, they're, they're by no means the um, by far the best players who have ever lived. They're by no means the players who have the who hold like the most important um, what's it called the the records. There there is so many history that's worth like looking into and. 88 is, it's, I was going to say it's not that far, but now it's, it's, it's 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, but it's, it's still somewhat recent in a sense, like, uh, and going back all the way to, uh, at least the open era, because as we said before, before then it was a little bit of a difficult time because only amateurs were allowed to play the Grand Slams, but it's, um, appreciating, uh, a lot of how tennis has evolved and how, how much players have been able to um, contribute to the game and bring along like a, so many of those coveted um, titles and coveted um, um, records. Like for example, this the, the career slam, which it was something that uh, was done by um, Rod Laver and Margaret Court as well. Um, and the golden slam is, is type, it's the type of stuff that, uh, I think it comes because she accomplished that. It's not something that people are looking into having before. It's just because right. somebody, somebody did it be before. And, yeah. And then it became coined yeah. and, you know, and people look at it today and just, you know, I think there's a couple of points I want to make here. One is that this is where the kind of the greatest of all time debate just kind of short falls short. You know, because it's like it's like you're not taking into account every single year from the open era when you're talking. It's it's really just you know who is the best across those 15 years. That's fair to say because Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or you know Serena, Venus, Hingis, whatever, they all played at the same time. So it's easier to make that comparison. But you know, to discount, it's kind of like it, the Steffi to me is kind of there's an interesting parallel here. It's kind of like in 2002 when Sampras retired, right? He had 14 slams. He, he retired at the U.S. Open, beat Agassi, retired on a high, and said, okay, I'm done. And little did he think that, you know, seven years later, that record would be eclipsed by Roger Federer in 2009. And then two other guys would come and eclipse it again. And then now all of a sudden, you know, people just slide throw Sampras under the bus like oh he was he was he was nothing compared to the big three he wouldn't have you know and they just completely discount all of his seven Wimbledons and you know all of his achievements or they they almost put an asterisk by it as if to say oh this was this was before these guys came so that's why he was able to win so much I'm like that's not how it works you know and that's a little bit what I feel like because of the dominance of Serena and because of her longevity too from 1999 till 
to about you know 2019 still reaching yeah, she's going to compete in her fifth uh olympics yeah, i think across four decades so, so yeah. because of their longevity and because of their achievements we tend to forget and we tend to underrate the achievements of players that came before them so in a way i mean steffi graf because she finished on 22 you could argue a lot of her winning percentages and her records are are more impressive than serena but because we get that importance to the, that grand slam tally it's all about the grand slam race you know now and so because of that you know immediately serena is seen as superior at 23 and you know if you actually go back and you dig and you see okay yeah you know serena's 23 and 10 in slam finals it's fairly close and graf is 22 and 9 and you start digging and you start seeing you know across who who they played but it it just to me the greatest of all time is the wrong question to be asking you know it's more like it, it, there we might never know who the greatest is i just don't think it's like there's just too many variables there's too many to a lot has a lot changed in so many years for that to be the question you know what i mean mhm okay uh in in that sense like that there's a i i think it's it's the wrong question in that um people almost die like live and die for answering this question in a sense like almost kind of becomes part of this debate but i don't think it's a it's the wrong question in in how I think it's still such a fun debate to have. I think it's such a great because well I did a because otherwise if I just like straight up like say here like oh yeah the the gold debate is ridiculous I'd be almost hypocritical because I I did an episode about the gold and I've been thinking about this for a long time and I really love thinking about those things as well because when you compare and contrast uh, those those things I think that's you can either become um a crazy fan and just kind of like discredit everything else that everybody did because it was not your your favorite or you can just look at those things and and learn more about the the statistics and learn more about the records that they've set and and how difficult it was and how difficult it still is and um even even through this I feel like uh looking through those uh records and things that they've they've done I think it's possible to even uh look forward into the game and see um why uh just essentially just trying to apply changes or apply um critical thinking of to how the sport has evolved and whether there is something that we need to change not necessarily in order to uh be able to uh get those records back in the books but like um to get somebody to actually uh make those records again to break those records but just to see just how um kind of like just to to follow the times like for example the 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 whole point of um the best of five set matches uh being in, in under discussion as well and uh the fact that the Australian Open has a tiebreaker and a fifth set and then Wimbledon has a tiebreaker and a fifth set even though it's at 12-12 those are things that that change with the time and they reflect uh just how difficult are not necessarily how difficult but how much the game has changed and how physical it has become and how much the equipment has changed and things like that so that um because say for example Djokovic wins um on a tiebreaker uh against Federer does it doesn't put an asterisk on his record because he 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 did it so i think those are things that we can look at like and you can pull those things out from the gold debate as well because when you're doing gold debates you're looking 
invariably at their records and the, the biggest domination years that they've had and how their careers um, spanned and like how how many titles they've done so far, how many wins, how dominant, how dominant against their rivals they were and things like that. And there's always a lot of fun in, in considering those things and thinking about which record is more valuable, which record is, is better, which record seemed to be a little bit more difficult to accomplish. But yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I, I said that like, even though it's difficult to compare uh, men and women, uh, saying that graph... To have. Yeah. Like, it's, just, it's just that you know, we just, we'll never really know what, you know, it, it, we're never going to come to a definitive conclusion in these debates, but it's just, there's just so much fun to have. And there's just so much statistics and so many, so many things, like you said, like the game changed and tiebreaker introduced. And now, you know, all those slams have different, like, what do you do when you get to six all on the fifth? Now it's, it's different at all four slams and the precedents that were created I mean, before 1974, there was no tiebreakers in individual sets, too. So you would see score lines like 8-6, 14-12, 11-9. Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you go yeah. back and you're like, what? There was no tiebreaker? So, I mean, so yeah. those kind of things are, are, are very interesting. It's just that it's hard for me to really think and see. Like, if you gave Bjorn Borg, who played in the 70s and, and, and won six Frenches and five Wimbledons, if you gave him the racket technology of today and equipment of today and, uh, you know, professionalism people bring to the court today and their entourages and, you know, the, you factor in the court speed and CPIs and, you know, all the and modern day social media and all that, you know, how would he do that kind of sense? Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very hard to kind of predict that. But I think yeah, within exactly. the same era, I think you, there's definitely you can compare. Like for instance, Oh yeah, it's a it's it's good to compare. Like it's it's fun like, as well. Like, like mm-hmm. I know that there was a writer for tennis.com who completely mm. said that it's it's bogus. It's complete bogus. This goat debate because, like you said, we'll, it's cherry picking and it's like, what's your favorite pizza? Ooh, it's pepperoni. But what's your number two pizza? You know. So it's it's kind of that, and I I don't and I you know my take on it is it's somewhere in in between. It's not quite that extreme. But it also doesn't mean that you can start comparing like Lou Hode with, uh, you know, a, a future great in the in the game that's yet to come. You know, so I think it as long as you do it across different times. That's why even I put uh, put up a thread on Twitter. You can follow me at Bunch V2K. By the way, um, I pulled up a thread just kind of separating the generations, just because I feel like in in all the generations of both men's and women's, it's it's kind of because there's a lot of crossover between the different generations. It's kind of hard to to pinpoint, you know, and everybody peaked at, at different times too. So it's kind of hard to mm-hmm. remember who all played at the same time in what era. So I think mm-hmm. once you have lists of, let's say, you know, 30, 40 players and you can say, okay, wow, that was the competition of these five or six prime years. And then you separate mm-hmm. the generations out into kind of buckets of five to six years. It makes mm-hmm. the it makes doing the goat debate even more fun. Mm. Just because you can see like, oh wow, okay, wow, Lendl crossed over with Sampras, and you know, from yeah. 1991 to 1993, and then start looking, yeah. oh, he was in his prime, oh, he was, and so there's just a lot of variables to consider, and it's like just never yeah. ending, but it's so much fun. Yeah, exactly, and just to to finish off because uh, we were running out of time finally um it's always good to have uh, those 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 debates because uh 
um, tennis fans for so long and that there's obviously uh, endless statistics that you can compare and contrast. And definitely, but uh, yeah, that was, yeah. Just, I just wanted to just... jump in and add, Go ahead. add one other thing. One other really cool parallel that actually okay, I just ahead. noticed with Steffi Graf in particular. In 1988, mm. it was also paralleled with Mats Willander. In 1988, oh, yeah. who also had a very dominant year and he won three out of the four slams and finished world number one on the men's side. And it's just uh, the reason why I think Steffi Graf 1988 is also... Uh, incredibly memorable and will be forever remembered in history, is it also was only one of two years where both a dominant male and a female were so dominant in that same season and won and racked up all the titles at the same time in the same year. You know what I mean? Like Mats Wilander, 1988, is Steffi Graf, 1988. They both were clear-cut number ones. And you'd have to go back, I mean, before that, there was no other season like that except for recently, 2015, actually, when you had Serena Williams mm-hmm. and Djokovic both yeah. one year both one time away. So I thought I'd just bring that up just because it parallels with a little bit of today, Djokovic, Serena, and Willander, and um, Steffi, 1988. Yeah. 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 So others to say, like, a, the, the final note before I close off is that uh, it's – so it's just always good to like look in tennis history and like see them for what they are as well. Like we don't have to necessarily be comparing all the time. Just looking at Graf's Golden Slam, it's by itself an incredible feat. I don't have to be comparing this to like how Nadal is doing or how Serena Williams is doing. It's right. It's it's they're they're both incredible players on their own um, credit. Um, and this just this season itself, it's. For me, one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable, season in in history, and that, that that's it. That's that's it for for this episode. That that was um, a little bit of uh, Graf's Golden Slam and how um, this affected the tennis world. Really, how this rocked the tennis world essentially. And um, as Vanch said, you can follow him on Twitter at Vanch V Two K. And do you have anything else do you that you have for on on media like um like a blog or something like that? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. So a little bit actually about myself. I'm uh, I'm currently a brand ambassador actually for Crack Rackets. So you can follow them on Twitter at at Crack Rackets. And uh, I'm also coming out with a with a piece actually. Um, it should be coming out next week. It's it's on Palermo and uh, some. Because WTA tennis just resumed this week, and there's an event in Italy going on, and so I'll be probably doing a piece on that. And pretty soon I'll also be previewing U.S. Open dark horses. Um, those articles will come out, so stay tuned uh, on Crack Crack Rackets, and you can see more more coverage there. Additionally, I do have um, another a blog that I like to pep. It's called at Tennis Fan for Life. Um, it's not been very active, but if you want to look back uh, at between 2015 and 2018, I've done a, I've kept an archive of articles and pieces and cool statistics just in the bank uh, to look at and kind of remember and relive. So that's 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 uh, my blog, and I kind of transitioned from that and got into more writing and at Crack Rackets. I also was a was a writer for Tennis View magazine, and I covered the slams. Same time that I had my blog from 2015 to 2018. So yeah, 
All right. <laughs> so that's it. That's uh, Vench, guys. And uh, yeah, make sure you, you keep up with him on social media and follow all of the stuff that you just heard, which are also going to be in the descriptions. And when uh, his blog, his, his uh, piece is coming out, I'm going to post them on my social media as well, which you can follow um, on Twitter at uh, and Rollenberg. And on Facebook as well as just Tennis and Bagels and Instagram at Tennis and Bagels as well. Um, I don't necessarily post a crap ton there, but like I do have plans of like uh, going a little bit deeper into those stuff. But yeah, thank you so much for listening and uh, thank you, Vansh, for being here today. I'm looking forward to having you again uh, very soon. Thank you. Thank and you so much. yeah, that's thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a lot no of problem. fun discussing and diving deep into. A lot of different tennis topics. I think we covered a lot of ground, and I think uh, our fans uh, or our listeners will really enjoy it. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and hopefully we'll do it again soon. Thank you so much, Andre. No problem, man. Uh, see you later, and see you all listeners later as well. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.